The other day I was running, my realtor called me and said, hey, closing's gonna get pushed back two weeks, okay? It was snowing. Uh, and I was like, well, I guess I'm having a bad day. Or I just had a phone call that lasted for a minute that I gave me information that I didn't like, that I adjust to, and I move on to the next thing. And I can smile about the fact that I have a house that I've owned for a while that I'm selling and somebody wants to buy it and I'm closing. Totally my choice on how I choose to look at that. And you can frame everything that way. Yeah. I think happiness is a choice, right? You get to decide whether or not you're going to be happy. I think life is happening for you, not to you. And if you can adopt those things, then you can shift so much stuff. This is Jerome Myers with Dreamcatchers, and you're listening to the Traveling Optimist Podcast with Steve Odie. Hey everyone and welcome to the podcast, the home of optimism, insight and uplifting stories. How's everything going? I really hope you've had a great couple of weeks. So it's that time again for another episode of The Travelling Optimist. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, turn it up, settle down or ramp it up. It's amazing to have you dialed in. I really appreciate it. My guest today is Jerome Myers from Dreamcatchers and Myers Methods. Jerome is a property investor and coach and is a self-confessed corporate America dropout. He is an experienced engineer and ran a successful and profitable division of a multi-million dollar business on the east coast of the US. Things were going well, he was earning good money, but one day, despite running a profit, he realised some major decisions were being made for him that didn't sit right. He knew it was wrong... And my take from the conversation is that everything happens for a reason. And so if Jerome's bosses hadn't acted in the way they did, he wouldn't be the successful property investor that he is now and in charge of his own destiny. Jerome is a guy who seized the day and took an opportunity to make a difference to his family and be a person who inspires others to change their life in beautiful ways. So this is me and Jerome talking about learning to be flexible, being optimistic and always learning. But ultimately, this podcast is all about an inspiring man who loves to unlock the potential of those around him with the keys to happiness and success so they can catch their dreams and not chase them. All right, let's go. So welcome to the show, Jerome. Uh, welcome to the home of optimism. And so let me just first of all say that, you know, we finally made it. I had to cancel uh, our conversation a few weeks ago. So I just wanted to thank you for your kindness and understanding with that. And, uh, you know, so thanks very much. Glad to be here, Steve. Super excited to <laughs> chat with the uh, fellow across the pond. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we were connected by Justin Breen, weren't we? Yep. Yeah. Just so how do you, man. yeah, Mr. Epic, he's a connecting machine, isn't he? He's like, um, he's like the ultimate network guy. Without question. I mean, he calls himself, he brands himself as a super connector. And I mean, he's expanded my network internationally. Right. And that part for me is super exciting. I'm really grateful that Justin came into my atmosphere. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. I think that um, you're based in North Carolina as well. And, and I think part of the great thing about technology, and I mentioned this off, off, air as well is that it's being able to connect with people like you who ordinary folks in the UK perhaps would never have would never have even got to hear of your insight and your story and things and I love that and but it's not 
it's not just about uh you know because you're into property and everything aren't you and and also you have your dream catchers company as well but your insight and your story can be translated all over the world can't it i think so i think the only barrier right now is language <laughs> absolutely so look what's the backstory what's the you you know you like to be called jay don't you is that okay yeah, that's amazing, man. I'm just grateful you call me anything right now. <laughs> yeah, the backstory. Um, I'm a corporate America dropout. I spent a number of years climbing the corporate ladder. And then my kind of last hurrah was building a $20 million division for a Fortune 550 here in uh, Virginia. And the reward for that was a phone call at 455 on Christmas Eve. And it went something like this. Hey, Jerome, we're going to lay about half those folks off. We want you to pick the people who are going to stay. And that's kind of it. And I said, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. And he said, no, we're going to do that. I've made my mind up. And he said, it's five o'clock on Christmas Eve. I am going to spend time with my family. So I kind of stared at the phone as it went dead. And I was like, oh, I guess it just got real now. So I spent Christmas through New Year's figuring out who was going to be on the team going forward and promised myself that I would never have to do that again. Mm. And then Thanksgiving came around and same thing was happening. Same conversation. Don't spend your check on Black Friday, ladies and gentlemen. Not sure what's going to happen towards the end of the year. And it's like, I'm a corporate America drop. I, I just can't do this anymore. Mm. People leave me to run the business. And then when it comes time to make people decisions, the decision's getting made for me. I want a little more control over myself. And so I decided that I was going to pursue real estate full time and mm. when I knocked on the doors at about 10 different banks, they all told me no, told me I didn't have the proper experience or credentials. I said, how do you get the proper experience and credentials? And they said, go find a partner. And I didn't know anybody. And that was really sobering because I'd spent a couple of decades working and my network hadn't changed any more than what it was in college. And that was really disheartening for me. Yeah. So it's that's a brutal thing to do, though, isn't it? You know, having to tell people that they they won't have a job. Brutal. Stress levels yeah. high. Yeah, I didn't eat, didn't sleep. It was it was a really rough time for me. It was the first time that I had to do that. Mm. And I, I realized that I just wasn't cut out for it, especially if it was somebody else's decision. Mm. There were a lot of people who worked really hard and they were impacted in ways maybe they shouldn't have been impacted. Mm. And I, it just didn't sit right with me, especially since I ran a pretty profitable business. I mean, we did 20 million in revenue and we had $6 million in profit that year. Mm. So I felt like we could figure something out for some more of the people, but we chose not to. Yeah. So you use that kind of experience, that negative experience, turned it into a positive in terms of the way that you run your business, I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's totally different thought process now. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it like? What was life growing up for you? You know, what was it? Uh, you were, you were, you live in Virginia. I said North Carolina earlier. Sorry. No, no. So I, the business that we built was in Virginia. I moved to North Carolina after the decision oh. to leave corporate America. Oh, okay, cool. So yeah. What was life like? What's uh, what was young Jerome Myers? What was he up to as a kid? Yeah. So I'm the son of a soldier and a stay-at-home mom. And we lived in the same house, even though I'm supposed to be army bread. I lived in the same house for 18 years. And it was a bunch of do the best you can with what you have and really try to play at the highest level possible. And mm. so I, a lot of sports, 
really strong academically, was fortunate enough to get an academic scholarship to an engineering school here and play football four years uh, while studying engineering. And so that was kind of the dream. I remember going to the school that I attended for university in middle school for what they call homecoming. And I decided then that that was the school I wanted to go to. I hadn't checked majors or anything else, but it was like, this energy is amazing. I want to go here. Yeah. And sure enough, I was fortunate enough around uh, the latter part of the winter of my senior year to get a full scholarship to go there. So oh, that's awesome. Really, really exciting. Yeah. So, yeah. And also that you were able to play a sport that you loved. I would imagine that um, American football is... Is that like the, the, the pinnacle for anybody that goes to college in terms of sports or? It was for me, right? So I was, I, I did football, baseball and taekwondo when I was a kid and I had to pick in high school. My coaches were like, yeah, you're not very good at baseball. You should just go work on football. <laughs> and I thought I was really good at baseball, but they said otherwise, right? They're like, Jerome, you're going to sit on the bench. Like you should go play with lift weights and get condition for next football season and so that's what i ended up doing and so for me to play division one football and study engineering it was like oh man can it get any better yeah yeah. and it did get better but i mean that was when i thought about what was going to happen when i was i guess i was maybe 13 or 14 Mm. that and then being able to live that out five or six years later was pretty amazing yeah that's so cool did you always want to be an engineer when you grew up then I didn't even know what an engineer was until my like junior year in high school. Yeah. Right? I always thought the engineer was the person <laughs> that drove the train. Right. And so I was in a uh, magnet program for technology education. And one of the assignments was to shadow people. Yeah. And I went down to the city and I was shadowing the people that ran the traffic lights. And so in that phase, they were like, oh, this is what an engineer does. And this is what a civil engineer does. And that's what I ended up studying. Yeah, yeah, nice. So who would you say your um, biggest influences then when you were younger? Oh, definitely my my parents. Like I it I could try to separate them, but they're like just one person to me. Like they they go together. So my dad would get up and work Carolina half days. I know people across the pond might not know what that is, but it's when you pick which half of the day you want to work. So he went from six in the morning to six in the evening. He come home, we have some supper, and uh, my mom would hang out with me the majority of the time. I still remember hanging out with her, playing with Tonka trucks in the front yard. And the guy who I wanted to be at five came around the corner. And I don't know how it works over there in England. I've never been. But in America, there's a trash man. And he hangs off the back of the truck. And when he gets to the home, he grabs a trash can. And Lonnie was the coolest guy I knew, right? He flipped the lid off. It's been in a circle and then fall <laughs> flat like a quarter when you drop it. He grabbed the trash can, do some fancy trick, dump it in. He knew I was watching, so he's performing. He'd dump it in. He'd spin the trash can back to the curb. And then he'd do my favorite thing, Steve. You know what the favorite thing is, right? He grabbed that lever and he pulled that lever and you hear all the noise and you see the thing come down and crush the trash. And I looked at my mom. I was like, I want to be a trash man. Like, this is the most epic thing ever, right? And she um, she looked at me as on, the way only a mom could do. She said, baby, it's not going to pay for the lifestyle you want to live. Like, you want Nikes and you want cars and you want a house. Like, you can't pay for all that stuff on that salary. And I was like, but Lonnie gets home at three and he gets to play with his kids when they get home from school. Yeah. Like, 
that's what I want to do. And she said, yeah, but you can't do it that way. That, you need to get a job that's going to pay for what you wanted. And so this came back up in high school because I really like solving problems and yeah. whether it's number problems or people problems. And I was like, well, maybe I could just be a psychologist. And so I went to talk to my physics teacher. He's like, I've got this dilemma. Should I be a psychologist or an engineer? And he said, well, you'll be good at both because it's just problem solving, but one pays more than other. So I thought about my mom. She said I needed to get the one that pays more. And so that's how I picked engineering. It's right. really sad, but that's how I picked engineering. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, we all, we all, you know, follow our own path. It sounds like your, your parents, your mom and dad were really cool about, you know, not dictating what you, you were going to be doing with your life. They'd, they'd let you, you know, blaze your own trail kind of thing. Yeah, in some ways, they didn't want to take care of me after I left. So they wanted to make sure that I was going to be able to make it decent. Yeah. But outside of that, yeah. like they, didn't, they weren't going to let me study art or basket weaving or anything like that. No. But yeah, I mean, been super supportive and encouraged me to explore and learn. Yeah. But just always wanted me to be self-sufficient. That yeah, yeah. part was super important for them. So with your um with the, the the scenario that you said uh, you know in terms of the brutality of of being told you've got to lay some staff off even though you were, you were profitable and and the, and the business was doing really well were there any other sort of sliding door moments or serendipitous moments that had happened over that sort of period where you suddenly you you were getting this sort of seed germinating to say do you know what I'm thinking maybe I need to do something for myself or was it, was it just something that just went bam I've got to do, I've got to get out. Yeah. So a lot of things, I knew I wanted to do my own thing before I even got out of school. I mean, I remember sitting on the student with my buddy Duran, sophomore year of college, we started doing math. That's what engineering students do in their free time. We, we don't have a lot of creativity, right? So I, I was paying $3.95 and I had two roommates doing the same thing. Duran downstairs was doing the exact same thing in his apartment. We multiplied it out around the complex. The guy was making $700,000 a year. We never saw him. We never talked to him. Like, wait, I can live off of 70. I don't need 700. Like, how do you do this? Right? So right then I knew that we wanted to do the real estate thing. But I just didn't know how. I didn't have the right network. And I mentioned that earlier. Like the part that was most depressing or deflating was I realized I didn't grow my network the way I needed to in order to go back and do the thing I wanted to do in college. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I knew at that point, that's what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how to get there. So I kept going down the path that I knew how to go down mm -hmm. because that was laid out. And that's what we tend to do as adults is we don't know this thing instead of investigating and finding out how to do that thing. Yep. We go do the thing that everybody tells us that we're supposed to do because I guess it's easier or less friction. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. along the way, it was like, okay, how can I grow my income? How can I increase my credit score? Can I acquire some assets to make me more valuable so that maybe I can go do the thing that I was talking about in college? And yeah, uh, the piece that I missed was I needed experience. I think every investor is trying to overcome four things, knowledge, deal flow, experience, and capital. And so I was working on capital because everybody thinks you got to have the money to go buy the thing. And it was totally out of order. And I wasted so much time solving out of order. First, get the knowledge, then get access to deals. The deals make you valuable to the people who have experience and money. And so be in the middle of the deals. And then, you know, that experience will happen by working with people and having the deal. And then, of course, the capital comes on the back end. Hmm. And so I, I, if somebody would have told me that when I was sitting on the stoop, 
my life would probably be totally different than it is today, but we're still here and we're still making progress. Oh, that's cool. So did you actually leave your job straight away or did you sort of transition slowly? Nope. Oh, on. How, how yeah, did you manage I, I that transition? Were you married at the time or to have family or anything? Yeah. Two kids, wife, everything at the time. It was, uh, how did I manage it? I had money in the bank, so I didn't have to make money right away. And it, the great part about all of it was the banks told me, all 10 banks told me no. Mm. And so I had to go figure out another plan because my plan A didn't work. And so I started fixing and flipping houses. And for anybody who's fixed and flipped a house, they know that their money's going the wrong way until they close on the house. Mm. And so I did that. I, I All my money was going out, savings was dropping down, and then boom, yeah. we had payday. Yeah, And then we had another payday. And that's when we actually got into apartments and kept on rolling. So you went from being somebody that works for somebody else to being the master of your destiny. Um, and so what were the kind of challenges that you came up with and, and how did you manage to sort of stay consistent in your approach and work ethic and getting things done? Yeah, I think the consistency piece was built through childhood, right? You go to school, you go do your homework, then you go do your sporting activity. And then maybe if some fun time was left over, you go do some fun time. I did that from five to 22, right? That was life for me. Mm -hmm. I remember in college, like doing homework till midnight, going to workouts at four o'clock in the morning and doing it all over again the next day. Like that was just kind of the recurring schedule. So that stuff never left for me. Yeah. And even when I went into the workforce, I would go in like really early, like 5 a.m., 6 a.m. And that gave me access to people that I wouldn't get access to during a normal business day because they were in early as well. And they were kind enough to open up their offices to me and chat with me. And, you know, I just was mimicking the habits that I had already created. And I saw other people were doing who were the actual leaders of the company. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the the habit or the consistency piece of it. I think it was discouraging when things didn't go as planned. And for a lot of people who are employees, they don't get all of the brunt of things not working. As the leader of the organization, it is a whole lot more aggressive. And, you know, there is nobody giving you air cover when something goes wrong. Like mm -hmm. you're going to get hit. And if you're not built for it, you will fold. And I don't think most people understand that piece of it. And it's why those folks who take those risks get compensated so well, mm. right? Because when it's bad, it's really bad. And so yeah. that piece was the thing that was most shocking. How did I say into it? I, I had little people, like Kay and Leah, right? My two daughters who were counting on me to do it. The thing that I learned kind of the hard way was kids can't inherit your W-2, right? Your paycheck. Kids can't inherit that. It, you've got to build a business for them to walk into if they want jobs or to run it or to just be owners while you have a manager do it. And that's the only way to create generational wealth. And for me, growing up where I grew up, that was something that was extremely important for me. Yeah. I, I wanted to be able to start that. I wanted to be the patriarch. Leave a legacy kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, you know, having children is a, is a big motivator, isn't it? To do, to sort of 
plug in and and make sure that you've you know you're maxing maxing out every day make sure you've got the right mindset you come home you look at those i've got two daughters they're a bit older than yours um but um you know getting home every day and looking at them and thinking yep i I couldn't have done anything else you know i left it all out there and uh you know tomorrow's another day we'll we'll, whatever setbacks has happened you know we'll just overcome them for them yeah for some people though they become kind of a cage they feel like they can't go do the thing that they're most passionate or excited about because of them, right? And I think it's just all in how you frame it. For me, you know, it doesn't matter how bad it gets when those little people put their arms around me and nothing else really matters. When they smile at me and they're happy to see me, nothing else matters. And so that is a big stress relief. It's a reducer of the pain. And that is the game changer for most people because you can go to work and not feel like you do anything right. You can go out into the community and feel like nothing is going the way you want it to go. Mm. But when people are little, they are just so forgiving and understanding and patient and kind and interested, and they want you to be helpful or they want to be helpful. And that is something that I wish more adults would do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There needs to be some, yeah, more kindness and uh, empathy. I think with the um, you mentioned community there because I was I was doing when I was doing some research prior to you coming on the show, you were you were with a, a guy and you were they were talk, you were talking about how your in terms of your property business is is you're pitching it really in terms of like a mid market you're looking at helping um, those key workers if you like uh, find find properties and stuff and I, I wondered if you could talk to me a little bit bit about that and you know what was the the trigger for aiming at that market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, our firm focuses on providing quality workforce housing for those folks that make the world go round. That's the way we characterize it. Who are the folks that make the world go round? Well, retail workers, teachers, police officers, firefighters, you know, middle income earners who aren't making, you know, upper middle class money where they're going to go buy a home or maybe they're just early in their career. So they're not ready to take that step. Mm. And what we've found here is the housing stock is especially in this market in Greensboro, North Carolina, hasn't been refreshed or updated. And so the places that a lot of folks are living aren't that great. And so it's our ambition to help the people who own have owned these properties for a long time to retire because they've got a lot of their net worth trapped in the property. And then we take it, buy it at a reasonable price, make some capital investment to renovate the units. And then, of course, we'll raise the rents a little bit because we're, high, we're delivering a higher level of service. And those folks can have a great place to come and lay their heads and feel comfortable at mm-hmm. in the evening. I think it, with the advent of COVID, like more people have spending time at home than ever before. And that environment is absolutely have to be comfortable because if not, then where do you actually find solace? Where do you find peace or rest? And I, I don't think that you can find it anywhere if it's not in your home. Mm-hmm. And so we believe that landlords have a responsibility to participate in that programming piece. And then the residents also have their piece, but we want to be diligent owners of the properties. Yeah. Yeah. Did you kind of throughout your your time as as the the company grew and everything, did you sort of manage to reflect on, did you have sort of any limiting beliefs that kind of held you back at the beginning or, you know, did you come to the realization, actually, you know what, I'm pretty good at this. I can, I can, I can do this. Yeah. I'm trying to think through the limiting beliefs because you know, I, I was very much a bumblebee, right? I'm flying and I don't even know I'm supposed to not be flying, right? They, 
bumblebees just aeronomically aren't able to fly, but somehow they do. And so when we started out, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. I call it being unconsciously incompetent. <laughs> I, love <that. laughs> I love that. Yeah. Right. I was unconsciously incompetent and I was just going and doing things. And the people who were competent saw that I was not actually very smart about the things I was trying to do. And so they helped me by keeping me from doing what I was trying to accomplish. And just to make the point very clear, had I been able to get the loan on the first property that I wanted to buy uh, by myself, I would be bankrupt because the project was underestimated from a budget standpoint. The construction cost more than what I had in reserves in order to complete the project. Right. And so, you know, it's that type of stuff where the limiting book, we, we can be overconfident. So the the nice way of saying unconsciously incompetent is I was overconfident, right? And I thought I could do things that I couldn't do. That part, I don't know if that's a limiting belief or not, Steve, but it's a very dangerous belief. When did you realize that was a problem? And what happened? I realized that, well, I went, so I did that deal with some partners and then we got to a place where, the project was going to run out of money because we did it based on the original estimate. And it was like, what are we going to do now? Because if I put more money in, I might not have enough. And I didn't have enough to put all the money in that needed to go in anyway. Right. So we all had to put in, Mm. which is okay because it's part of once you buy the real estate, you have to be willing to go through it until it's done. Right. But that was when I realized that when it's like, Oh, we're out of money and we've got to do something in order to bridge this gap. And when I thought about it, it was like, man, I really would have been in real trouble had I been in here by myself. So how did you find out? How did you get together with that, that team of people then? What was the, what was the, the story for that? Yeah, man. So we're sitting on the stoop at one of my fix and flip projects, 1920s build, $90,000 project. I don't know what that is in pounds, maybe 80,000 pounds. And so we're sitting there and the guy pulls up in his white Dodge Ram. He hops out. He's walking up. He says, hey, man, I'm an investor in the neighborhood. I'd love to check out your finishes and make sure that we're going to be putting in stuff similar to what you're going to be putting into this house. And I said, sure, man, come in. Let's go around. And so he says, hey, you tuck that wall out. Granite looks great. Really like these cabinets. Go upstairs. Man, this tile in the bathroom looks amazing. And so he come back downstairs again and walk away. He's like, man, thanks for giving me the tour. He pauses at the door and he says, hey, do you know anything about that 23 unit building? It's like, yeah, I tried to buy that four or five months ago. He said, uh, no way. I'm going to put an offer in on it. I was like, you're the guy I've been looking for. The banks told me I need an experienced partner, and I assume you have experience if you're going to go put a, a, a offer in on that property. Yeah. He said, "Yeah, I got a little bit." And so I was like, "Please don't leave me out. Like you're the guy I've been looking for." You know, okay. And he just kind of non-committal shrugs, and he wa- drives off. Didn't ask for my information or anything, and he goes and makes the offer without me, Steve. And I'm crushed, right? Because I'm thinking, "Oh, he's going to call me today. He's going to send me a text. He's going to do something." Yeah, and. Fortunately, the offer got rejected and he goes and talks to a guy that I was lending money to while I was still in corporate America. And he said, yeah, uh, I'm only doing this deal if Jerome does the deal because 
he brought this to me four or five months ago, and I know he knows more about this than I do. Mm. And so the three of us get together, and we're going to do the deal, and then we add in a property manager and a broker. Yeah. And in doing that, we have this team of five, and we we take down the deal, and that's how it goes. And the icing on the cake is I ended up being the asset manager for that project. And so a press release comes out, rising star <laughs> partners with proven real estate investors to revitalize Churchill townhomes. Like, what are they talking about? Steve, they were talking about me. Oh, and the banks started calling me, man. And they wanted to talk to about pipeline and product and yeah. uh, know if I wanted to refinance. And I was like, man, this is amazing. Because six months ago, you guys didn't want to talk to me. No, and absolutely. So, it, it, that's that's how that's kind of the origin incredible so look uh, all right i'm gonna the, the elephant in the room for me here is this guy tried to back backdoor the the deal right and then he, well, he doesn't succeed you come back you're you're humble and you know you, you've got you're obviously not a person that bear, bears grudges or anything like that but how what, how did you work with this guy if you knew that he was a kind of a back and i'll say backstabber that might be a bit harsh but you know what what's the deal yeah, I mean, here's the thing. It's my fault, right? I take ownership for it. I, I couldn't articulate the value that I could bring to the deal, right? I couldn't tell him what I could, what problem I could solve for him. I didn't have it under contract. Mm-hmm. I tried to buy it by myself and failed. He didn't have any reason to want to partner with me. Mm-hmm. I, I hadn't given him anything. I showed him a house that I was fixing and flipping. I didn't show him an apartment deal. He didn't need my balance sheet network for liquidity. He didn't need any of that. He could go do that on his own. Mm. And so, you know, I, I couldn't take that personal because I fumbled the ball. Today, I could have a very different conversation with that person to make it such that they would be begging me to be on their team. Oh, yeah. But when I got started, I had nothing. And this goes back to me being in competent. I, I didn't know how to say what I needed to say. Well, you know, you say incompetent. I think, you know what? It's just a le- everything's a learning process, isn't it? And also, I, I think you're a bit like me. You're a very trusting person. Oh, yeah. And probably overly trusting, man. Yeah. I, I, my lady beats me up all the time about that. She's <laughs> like, you, you just hook, line, and sinker. And I'm like, well, I mean, I want people to show up and behave the way that I behave. Because yeah. If I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. You know? Yeah. And that's good leadership at the end of the day. I believe so, because I think once people can trust you, then they will move in a way that allows you to move quickly. Yeah. Right? I, when there's a lot of hesitation and you got to check and you mm. got to follow up, like there's a whole lot of inefficiency in a, that type of situation. Yeah. So the lesson, the lessons there really are, into, you know, own own it rather than put the uh, blame on other people is is own the, the situation you could have done better kind of thing and that puts you in a better position in the future i guess without question if i knew how to articulate the value that i could add to the deal mm. then maybe i'd have a different position but he asked me what do you want to bring to the deal and i said i don't know we'll figure it out mm. just don't leave me out mm. right i was too focused on what he could do for me and oh by the way this was the first time that he and I had a conversation, right? He owed me nothing. I was a stranger. Now, had I done a favor for him and let him come in and see what we were doing and yeah. just, yeah. But, you know, as far as getting married is what I call it, because these deals last three to five years, right? Like you're locked in, you're mm. you're co-signing a loan together. Yeah. That is 
uh, not something you do with strangers. It's not wise. You wouldn't do it for a car. And so just partnering with somebody that you first met and trying to get married on the first date isn't a good alternative. No, I, I, I agree. And also, you know, it does highlight the fact that it's it's very relationship orientated. And I, I'm all about relationship and I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm like the relationship guy in terms of how I operate in the workplace and stuff. And, and you know, I, I totally get that. As you've got a strong relationship with these people, things, are, things will, will fall into place, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You've got to build the relationships. And the other thing I'll say is if you're partnering with somebody for a number of years, you are absolutely going to have those situations where you've got to work through things. And if you've got a great relationship, it makes it a whole lot easier to work through. Oh, yeah, man. Absolutely. So um, that's all going well. You're getting into the marketplace in terms of this multifamily property development. Okay, from a UK perspective, that's a kind of different language. I wondered what that actually, could you describe what multifamily properties are? Yeah, so I think the majority of the stuff that you all have is condos. But when I th- when we talk about multifamilies in the US, it's a, one address, so a number, right? Let's call it 737. And then you've got letters, right? A, B, C, D. and But the whole building is owned by a person or a company. Right. Versus each unit being owned by the person living in the unit. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Right. That's that's good. Uh, that that helps actually explain what what because you, you mentioned twenty three units and stuff, and I was thinking, okay, are they individually owned or you own the properties, you rent them out? Yeah, that's Great. exactly how it works. Cool. So where where and how did Dreamcatchers come to be born? Then what's the what what happened there? Yeah, so I had the great fortune of being mentored by a couple of different executives who had access to development, developmental coaches. And I was like, oh, man, well, that's really interesting. It's like, Jerome, the best gift that I can give you is access to my coach. And so I would have biweekly meetings with a coach who would help me, give me assessments, help me uh, hone my skills and become better at X, Y, or Z. And when I saw what was happening with my career and I compared it with some of my peers, I realized that the difference was my development. And so I wanted to share that gift of development with other folks. And so in the end, we created a system and the mantra thesis is dreams should be real. And the whole idea is to help people figure out how to accomplish the thing that they dream of. Right. I think there's a lot of energy around chasing stuff, you know, green chasers and but they don't ever accomplish. They don't ever finish. And that's the goal for me. It's to really focus and drive home the point that you need to finish. You need to have completion because that is when the success is actually attained. Yeah. Right? There's a bunch of unfinished projects out in the world and people move on to the next thing because they have a short attention span. I want people to stay with it until they complete it. Mm. Oh no, I, I I understand that uh, that mindset. I used to be a bit like that, you know, sort of flipping between things, and and then I suddenly I came across this phrase, and it's it's start one, finish one, and it's it's revolutionized my life. <laughs> you know, I just it it means you just like you did, you focus on one thing, you finish it, and then you can move on to the next thing. And it's absolutely as a as a mindset and a way to work. It's really helped me, uh, you know incredible so uh, yeah i totally buy into that and i guess that's you're catching your dreams rather than chasing them absolutely and Mm. if you know for your listeners if nobody's told them recently your dreams should be real 
And now that you've heard that, you are absolutely 100% responsible for going out and doing that. You can't unhear it. Sorry, guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you've got to go and do it. So how do you how do you inspire people to change their life then? Do you, do you, do they have to be, do they have to be in a place where they, where they want to do it or, you know, cause you can lead a horse to water, but you, you can't make it drink. I know it's an old cliche, but it kind of fits this, this particular part of the conversation. And so how do you go about doing that? How do you get them to change what they're doing now because obviously they're in bad habits they're, they're doing things they're not doing things correctly to get to where they need to be yeah so you know i don't call them bad habits i call them modified behaviors in order to exist in the situation that they're in and so we offer people the red pill and it's six layers it starts with self-image and so i boil that down to can you keep the promises that you make to yourself and if you can you got a great self-image if you can't then you don't and it bleeds over into everything else in your life. And so self-image, can you keep the promises to yourself? Next one is relationships. And so how do you interact and interface with the world? And so in the relationship phase, we look to make sure that everybody that you're interacting with has mutual benefit. Most of the apex performers that we know only have people coming to them to get things. They don't have people coming to them to grow and connect with them and bring them value. Mm. And so we want to cut off anything that's one way because it's like a leaky bucket. And we want to make sure that the person is getting replenished. The next level is work, right? So you fix yourself, you fix your relationships with other people, then you fix your work and make sure that you're doing things that are in alignment with your stated values and beliefs. Mm. Right? It seems simple enough, but if you think about my story about laying folks off, it wasn't in alignment. So I needed to do something different. And so those three things are the nucleus. They are the source of all stress in your world. I've been waiting for somebody to argue with me and tell me that that's not true, but I think it's pretty true. The next level is health. And so once you fix the stressors, right, and they have a pretty strong control around those, then you move up to health. We do it after you do those things because those things lead to destructive behavior, what you were calling bad habits, right? And so we want people to have the stress under control so that they can opt into some really great healthy habits and ways to cope and deal with the stress and pressure that comes from the nucleus. Then the next level is prosperity. You want health before prosperity because if you have money and you don't have your health, your health will steal all of your money from you, right? And prosperity isn't just money. It's just a, a feeling of abundance and love and whatever else is important to you, right? Just overflow. And out of that overflow, we move into number six, which is significance, right? And significance is you giving and sowing into other people. The folks on the airplane are absolutely right. You should put your mask on first. Once you have your mask on, then you can go help others. A lot of times we try because we have a giving heart to go fix and help other people's situations, mm -hmm. and we haven't fixed ours yet. And so we teach people to do significance last, prosperity before that, um, health before that, then work, then relationships and self. And so we say you have to take the red pill because it starts with yourself, because that change on the inside radiates out and permeates into the environment around you. That's amazing. That's a, a really nice system. It's really easy to understand. Um, and I love the fact that you've got prosperity in there and, and, and abundance. People kind of a little bit wary of those kind of words, aren't they, in terms of, um, you know, law of attraction and, and, and all of that. Is, that. is that something that plays a part in that too? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think anybody who is uncomfortable with prosperity and abundance has a poor self-image. You don't have to be without in order to be a good person. In fact, the way that you can make the biggest impact is through your abundance and prosperity. Mm -hmm. If you want a program to happen or if you want something to change, your ability to make an investment usually gives you a seat at the table. Yeah. It usually gives you opportunity to share your voice. And the size of the problem that you're solving usually impacts the amount of compensation that you have. If you're solving big problems, then people are willing to pay you handsomely for it. If you're solving things that don't really matter, then mm. they're not going to pay you much because they don't see much value in it. Yeah. Yeah. So what, who, who are the sort of people that you're attracting into dream catches then, you know, what sort of struggles or what sort of life are, uh, are they experiencing? What are they experiencing pain or, uh, or as I was mentioned before, limiting beliefs that you kind of, you, you zone in on and ch- you, you're able to change that and, um, you know, guide them and point them in a new direction. Yeah. So I think everybody has a challenge in one of those six areas, if not in all of those six areas in some way, shape or form. Mm. What, I really focus on with dream catchers is there's a lot of people who know what they want to do. There's some people who know why they want to do it, but the how is the most difficult part. I think a lot of people go off and try to do this thing on their own. They don't have the support system. They don't have access to this strategic plan and they don't have a system to actually go from where they are to where they want to be. So we help people create that. And that for me, is the real value proposition. Mm. It's when, I I call it going into the desert. When you walk out of the jungle into the desert and water is sparse and you don't really see anybody around that you can go hang out with, there is no shade to shield you from the bearing down of the sun. You want somebody that's actually walking with you. And so we see ourselves as tour guides instead of travel agents. There's a lot of coaches who are travel agents. They are just going to send you off to go do the thing. We actually want to go with you on the journey, go through the process with you Mm. so that, you know, if you think about people who run marathons, there's people out there and and they're holding out those cups of water, right? And they're saying, all right, keep going. Or is somebody holding a sign? And just that little bit gives that person that burst to get over that hurdle and get to that next space. That's where we think the real value is. Because a lot of folks, back to your question earlier about how you make the transition, well, when you're making one of these transitions to these dreams, most people who know you are going to say, well, you, you don't do that. You're crazy. You can't do that. And that talk kills more dreams than anything else. Yeah. And no, we're here to say, oh, well, you can absolutely have that if you're willing to change and mm-hmm. do this. And if you're willing to endure the journey, whatever, however long it takes. And so the person that we're looking for shows up this way. I'm willing to do whatever it takes or however long it takes until, right? And if they can say those words, then we know that they're ready to embark on this journey. Until they get to the place where they say, I'm willing to do whatever it takes for however long it takes until yeah, we can't help them. No, no. They've got to be, they've got to be in that mindset to wanting to change, haven't they? Yeah. I, yeah. If, if, if the pain's not big enough, then they're not going to do anything. And one of my favorite stories, Steve, is about a dog, right? He's laying on the porch and a guy's walking up and the farmer has a dog and he's laying there and every now and again, howls a little bit. He's like, but he looks over. He's like, what's wrong with your dog, man? And the dog kind of looks at him. 
<laughs> and the guy says, well, he's laying on the nail. And he said, well, why doesn't he get up and go somewhere else? He said, it doesn't hurt enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. But I wondered if you yeah. have any sort of beautiful stories of, um, you know, successes of, of uh, some guys and, and ladies that you've helped. Yeah, I think my... My second favorite story, I won't tell the first favorite, my second favorite story is one of the guys who's a financial advisor. And so when I showed up, he was early in the business and he was fighting. He was fighting to keep the business going. And it was like, man, if I could just get over this hump, it was like, okay. And we start working and we start looking at schedule. We start talking about the people that he's meeting with. We start making little tweaks here and there. And He's grown from being a financial advisor to a, a growth uh, development director to now leading a, an entire state, right? Mm-hmm. And having a group of people, I think it's like 200 some people working on his team, right? He reports directly to the managing partner and he just bought the house of his dreams. Two years ago, we talked about him having an estate where he could go but fruit from the uh, fruit trees on his property and you know there would be no people around that could see his house and and he absolutely does that today and and literally closed on it back in november and we've been together for that entire ride it's been an amazing seven-year journey yeah and i mean he makes more money than he did when he was in corporate america and left to go build this business and you know it's it's really amazing what can happen if you're willing to commit to do whatever it takes until. Yeah. Yeah. Commit to do whatever it takes until. And I guess the, um, the, the, the great thing is that the endorsement of that is that actually if having a coach, is it the accountability aspect that you had somebody? Because yeah. when you're at the top of a, you know, if you're in the company, you're the, the owner or whatever, you've got no one that accountable. You're not accountable to anybody, are you? So the, there's an accountability piece. And then there's also, there's no place to vent. Mm. You can't vent down, right? Because you kill morale. You need to vent to somebody who's going to be objective. And I think the other piece of it is people who are giving you information from bottom up, oftentimes will filter it because they're concerned about what you may think or how you may feel. And so you may feel like you're getting great intelligence from the field and you're not. (laughs) So you can't make great decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's very true. And, um, you know, having a coach, there's there's often that sort of uh, dilemma with people that have started their own business and cash flow might be difficult. You know, you need a coach. You know, you need it. Oh, you know, you yeah. can't see it. Because, and, and all you can see is that's going to cost me. But yeah. they're, 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 they're not looking at the fact that it actually it's going to cost you in one way or the other, isn't it? Well, here's the thing. If your coach is a cost, then you don't have the right coach. Your coach is a profit center. Yeah. Right. They're creating money for you. And, you know, we we think about ourselves as counselors, consultants, and then the coaching piece of it. Right. And the whole goal is you shouldn't see us impacting your bottom line. Mm. Right. Not negatively. It Mm. should always be a value add. And so, you know, for instance, for him, I don't remember how he made a couple hundred thousand dollars for the last promotion that he got, like annual income outside of the other stuff he was doing, right? Well, we we don't charge him a couple of thousand dollars, right? And I mean, literally, like that's a net adder for him. Mm. And so your coach should help. Did we do all the work for him to get to that place? No. But did we make it possible? 
Yes. And the big piece of this was he said he didn't want that job. Yeah. Right. And now because he took that job, it's just changed the trajectory of his business and how much money he's making from actually taking on that additional responsibility. Well, and for us, that's really exciting. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. That's really fulfilling as well, isn't it? You know, you can see that you're making a massive difference. Yeah. I mean, so back to the red pill, right? Significance is the top level. I'm living the majority of, I spend the majority of my time in that space of working to be significant, working to impact the lives of others in a positive way, such mm-hmm. that my legacy lives on past whatever I do today. You know, buying buildings is great, but being able to help people create generational wealth through their businesses or through their investments or through the projects that they're working on mm-hmm. is really meaningful for me because they may not have the support in order to actually embark on the endeavor. And if they don't, then we're, we are keeping somebody from getting to the place that they need to be. Steve, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, right. If you don't publish this podcast, then maybe there's somebody out there who is going to solve cancer or some other crazy disease, and they need to be exposed to one of your guests in order to connect a dot that gets them on that journey. Right. And I think all of us are uniquely positioned to solve something for someone else. And we just have to walk into and own that. That's beautiful. I love that. Has optimism played a role in your life? Oh, man, that is the overarching goal, right? Optimism, gratitude. I don't know if they're synonyms or not, but I do think that you can use them interchangeably. And I think if you're not optimistic, you get yourself in trouble pretty quick because I, and my favorite way to describe this is you, you don't have a bad day. You have a bad event that you think about for a whole day, mm-hmm. right? There's something, another day I was running, my realtor called me and said, hey, closing's going to get pushed back two weeks, okay? It was snowing. Uh, and I was like, well, I guess I'm having a bad day. Or I just had a phone call that lasted for a minute that I gave me information that I didn't like that I adjust to and I move on to the next thing. And I can smile about the fact that I have a house that I've owned for a while that I'm selling and somebody wants to buy it and I'm closing. Holy my choice on how I choose to look at that. And you can frame everything that way. I think happiness is a choice, right? You get to decide whether or not you're going to be happy. I think life is happening for you, not to you. And if you can adopt those things, then you can shift so much stuff. You know, I, there's there's a bloke over there that I really like, uh, uh, Darren Brown. He's a illusionist, okay. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he did this. Um, he did this talk where they had like a the, the the dog, and people were coming there, and I think it was like luck. Can you make your own luck or something like that? But anyway, like it's just a fantastic program. And I think if you're looking for good things, you'll find good things. If you're looking for bad things, you'll find the bad things. And so choose optimism right? And you'll find more things to be optimistic about. Yeah, absolutely. No. Um, well, uh, obviously with the podcast, it's got the word optim- optimist in it. You know, I'm totally on board with that. I, I 100% agree. You know, if you can wake up happy and, you you know, with, with optimism and, and looking forward, you know, that just sets you up for the rest of the day in such a good way, doesn't it? You know, the thing is, I'm not, I'm not going to minimize, you know, tough things happen in life and stuff like that. Absolutely. They have, they have had happened to me too, but it just means that you can find different solutions. It means that you've got a different way of, you can look at things in a different way, you know, and, uh, and, and that's when you say like, you know, you choose to be happy, you choose to be optimistic. That's mirrored with the things that are coming back to you in your life as well. I guess if you were going to write a book, right? 
what, what would it be about? Yeah, so we did too. Um, the last one we did is called Your Dream Should Be Real. And I just tell the story of how we've walked down this path of creating the red pill and learning about the silver lining and all those things that some people can say mm. was bad. Mm. Great example. I was in a head-on accident with a dump truck when mm. I was 22, right? And it was August 13, 2005. And the guy crossed the center line and hit me head-on. I ended up getting cut out the car, medevaced. And in that book, I said, look, he would have made a great decision had my car not been there in that instance, because if he didn't hit me, he either could have killed himself by running into the ditch or he would have run into the back of four cars that were in front of him where he was going too fast to stop. Right. And so the center line, the double yellow lines that were there were rules that he could have broke if the timing was just a little bit different. Right. And this is the thing that I think matters the most for a lot of people is like the rules or guidelines. I don't think they're always a hundred percent. And there are times when the rules can be broken and nobody be negatively impacted, but the rules are there because there's a risk that somebody can be negatively impacted. And this was just a great example of that. Mm. And so, you know, I think it's, it's really about optimism and gratitude and really looking for the silver lining in whatever situation happens. And I, 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 if I can carry that message around in a new book, I think it would be phenomenal because I think the world needs more of that. Oh yeah, totally. So what, what have, um, what have the next years got in store for, for Jay? What, what's, uh, what are your plans and goals and what are your dreams? Yeah. So we're going to grow the portfolio to a thousand doors. Uh, we're planning to do that in pretty short order. 2028 is the end date for that. And then just really working with apex performers and helping them achieve their goals and play at a level that most people haven't seen. Mm. And if we can do those two things, I think we'll have a pretty long and meaningful legacy. You'll go, you'll go to bed every night knowing that you've, you've given it 100% and um, you, know, you, couldn't have, you couldn't have done any more. You've, you've left everything on the field. Yeah, got to play full out, man. Yeah, Got to play absolutely. full out. <laughs> I love that. Jerome, listen, it's, uh, you know, that's a really nice place to finish, I think. And, um, you know, I, I'm so grateful for you coming on the show. It's really great. And, um, you know, what you're doing is phenomenal. And you're, you know, the, the way that your philosophy and on, on life generally is, is all about helping people. Uh, and that's manifesting great things into your life as well. And I think there's some really fantastic lessons to be learned for everybody there. So I, I can't thank you enough, man. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me on, Steve. This has been a tremendous honor for me. Next time we'll have a cup of tea each uh, on the pod, you know, and uh, <laughs> we'll, go, we'll have a spot of tea. And you must come over to England sometime as well, tea. hopefully w when this pandemic is, uh, has finished and stuff. And uh, it'd be good to meet you. Yeah, it'd be awesome. I need to come see you and Chris Ross and a few other folks out there. Excellent. Excellent. Listen, I wish you continued success, my friend. And, um, you know, we're going to stay in touch. And, and thank you again. Thank you. Take Talk care. Soon. Well, that was such a great conversation with Jerome. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, you can contact Jerome and connect with him through all of the socials. I'll leave the details in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon and Google. And sharing the show with friends and family and colleagues is always, always greatly appreciated. It's brilliant to have you on board. Thanks so much for listening. Take care, everybody. Stay strong. We're almost there out of the COVID thing. 
Choose optimism every day. And remember, happiness is a choice. Take care.